Good Sunday, South Valley Community Church. We're going to be taking a one-week break from our series in the Book of Acts lessons from the early church and diving into one of my favorite portions in all of scriptures, Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And we're doing this because I wanted to do something a little bit special um, because the last of our uh, campuses will be going inside this week from outdoor services. Hollister Campus already made that transition, and now um, Gilroy, both our English and Spanish-speaking services, will be going from outdoor services to inside. And on that note, I've mentioned um, this in the previous weeks, but all of our online content as far as Sunday services will continue. Of course, we would love to see you in person, but I've, I've received tons of messages from people um, that have extreme asthma uh, conditions, immunocompromised, or a relative that might be uh, in a vulnerable category. So whatever the reasons may be, just know that we'll continue to do the online content. Hopefully we'll be live streaming our Sunday morning services soon. But um, if you can, we wanna see you in person at one of our gatherings in Hollister or Gilroy. Now, the passage for today, Revelation chapter four and five. Now, as I said, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, but I also believe this is one of the most powerful and life-changing portions of Scripture. I mean, this has the power to, to crush fear and anxiety, to destroy doubt, to, to reorient the way you see the world. It's that powerful. The problem is, Revelation can be a difficult book. Oftentimes people approach it like it's the scary book at the end of the Bible. And sort of that, that reputation may not be, be fair, but you at least get it because there's, there's bizarre imagery in it. There's like, and then, then the, the guy says, I saw a vision of a, a beast who had an eagle's head with 15 eyes and a horn growing out of it. Upon the horn, there wasn't another eyeball. And it's sort of like weird. And then there's also this, this picture of it being a book of, of judgment and wrath. But the thing you have to understand is Revelation is not a book to fear. For the first Christians who were reading this book, this was the book of hope. See, they were being persecuted. There was evil tyrants. There was oppression. And when they read the book of Revelation, it was, yes, a book of judgment, but that judgment was good. It was the idea that God one day will right the world of its wrongs. He's going to restore the created order, that he would vindicate those who are suffering in, in these horrible circumstances. So yeah, there's judgment in it, but it, the judgment was filled with hope that God will defeat evil. And so we often approach Revelation from that wrong angle. Another, another problem with it is the fact that it's a specific genre called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature uses signs and symbols and metaphors to communicate truth. And oftentimes, 2,000 years removed from the, from the original composition of the book, those signs and metaphors and images are, are foreign to us, so it can be difficult to navigate. But even with that said, even if you can't figure out every last image and metaphor, if you take a look at the big picture, some things become crystal clear. And what we get from Revelation 4 and 5 is clear, and it is powerful, and it is life-changing. So let's dig in. Chapter 4, verse 1. This is right after John has written in the book of Revelation, seven letters to seven churches. That's the start of this book. And after you get to see the contents of those seven letters written to seven churches, this is what occurs. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. 
Immediately I was in the spirit and there was a throne in heaven and someone was seated on it. An important note right off the bat is that oftentimes in the first century world, there was people who claimed to have visions or who were taken up into heaven. But those those stories were filled with long, perilous, arduous journeys. Like to get to heaven was no easy task. You had to go to like layer after layer and defeat this layer and then go on to this portion. In this case, it's an open invita- invitation, an open door into heaven. Now, what I want to do next is read to you the remaining of chapter 4. And it's going to be filled with images, some of them bizarre and and weird to us. But just try and picture everything that's being said, everything that's being discussed. Picture in your mind what is taking place. Don't let your mind drift off. Do your best to focus on what is being said. Verse 3. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, A rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on those thrones, 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass similar to crystal was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created." It's heavy imagery, powerful imagery, bizarre imagery for us, especially for modern people. But hopefully you're able to sort of try to picture these types of things. And one helpful way of looking at this is to imagine you're in like a like this empty warehouse building and it's completely dark and it's, it's so huge you don't even know where it ends. But you do see a light that's shining in the center and that's the throne. And that's what you're first made aware of, that this is a throne room scene. But then like what takes place is picture another set of lights going on and they point to this sea of glass that's surrounding the throne. And then after you realize that, then some other lights kick on. And now that you're made aware that there's these four living creatures forming a circle around the throne, then another light kicks on. And now you're aware that there's these 24 thrones with 24 elders encircling the throne. And so you're meant to image in your mind like concentric circles going further and further out. Sea of glass, torches, four animals, and then the 24 elders. This majestic picture of fire and thrones and beast. And they're all surrounding the center point, the throne room. Now this prepares us for chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. 
Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, there's a lot of debate upon what exactly images mean in the book of Revelation, but what taking, what's taking place here is pretty much universally understood. What, what does this, this scroll, that seal that needs to be opened represent? It represents sort of the final program of God, the end goal of God for humanity. So it represents God righting the world of its wrongs, restoring the created order, bringing reconciliation, doing away with war, famine, and tears. It's, it's the setting of all things right. It's the making of all things new. And so it's very important that someone is able to open this scroll. Because without it, all the injustices that have ever taken place, all the bad things that have been done to you when you've been kicked on the face, when you've been cheated, not just to you, but everyone in the world, all of those things just add up to nothing. They're kind of meaningless and pointless. No one is able to bring about the opening of the scrolls. Human suffering happens. There's nothing you can do about it. The bad guys win. It's that, it's that type of thing. Now, this is what's crazy. This is what's crazy. If someone asks, this angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll? Now, question, who is holding the scroll right now? Who's holding the scroll? It's the beginning of the first verse. It's in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And who's that? That's God. God is holding the scroll and an angel says, who's worthy to open the scroll? And the obvious answer should be God. And you, you expect there to be like some smart straight A student angel that raises his hand. It's like, oh, the answer, of course, is God. God's worthy. That's what you're expecting, but that's not what occurs. Verse three, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and I wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. No one's worthy. And this almost sounds blasphemous at this point. God's holding the scroll. And the answer is no one is worthy. And so at first you want to react to this and say, like, what is the Bible even saying? But you got to let the Bible do its work. You got to let the Bible teach you what it wants to teach you. What could possibly be going on? It says no one is worthy to open the scroll. And this is like the, the worst possible news. If no one can open the scroll, none of the reconciliation, none of the restoration, none of the righting of the wrongs can take place. All the suffering, all the evil, all the injustice, both in your life and all throughout human history. I mean, human history is filled with immense suffering. None of that will be righted. It's all pointless and meaningless suffering. Have you ever seen something on the news that is so, so wrong and so unjust and, and so vile that like deep in your gut you can't take and you say, God, you have to fix this. You have to make it right. Something can't keep happening like this. And it's like that one instance is repeated a million times over in history. This can't happen. This is so wrong. If no one is able to open the scroll, then all the suffering, all the evil, all the wrong that's been done, it's pointless and meaningless. Nothing will ever come of it. Nothing will ever be righted. And so because of that, John weeps and all of humanity weeps alongside of him. There will be no defeat of evil. The tyrants win. The bad guys win. Evil again appears to be victorious. And so there's weeping in heaven. But then verse 5. 
Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. There is someone worthy to open it. And it's the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, what you just read is the most beautiful paradox in all literature and in all history. It's really easy to miss, but it's the most beautiful paradox. The elder steps on and says, who's worthy? And who does he introduce? He says, the Lion of Judah, the conquering Lion of Judah, he's worthy to open the scrolls. But then what image do you get? It's the introduction of the Lion, the conquering Lion of Judah, but then who walks in? Is it a lion? No. It's a lamb standing as if slain. And this is the beautiful, rich theology of it. The lion is the conquering lion precisely because he is the slain lamb. His victory, the lion's victory, is found in the lamb being slain for the sins of the world. And there's another paradox on top of that. It says that the lamb is standing as if slain. That, that image is almost incongruent with itself. When you're slain, you don't stand in victory. Yet this lamb stands in victory precisely because he was slain. It's this beautiful, rich imagery. The lion is victorious precisely because he is the slain lamb. It says he has seven horns and seven eyes. And again, some of the stuff in Revelation can be hard to decipher and there's debate about what means what, but this one's pretty clear. In the biblical world, horns mean power and eyes represent sight. So seven horns, it means it's all, he's all powerful and he's all seen. He's omnipotent and omniscient. The all powerful and all seen one is the lion, but he's also the lamb who was slain. It goes on. Verse seven. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. So it's this massive celebration that breaks out. The lamb is worthy to open the scrolls. He is victorious. The lion and the lamb has conquered. Now, what's interesting is in, in most celebrations, we pretty much celebrate our own accomplishments or milestones. So you have a birthday party, you have an anniversary, you graduate and you throw some celebration. Even, even when um, we celebrate a, a team that we, that we like and they say they win the Super Bowl and like, yes, yes, we're going to celebrate our team won the Super Bowl. Even in there, it's sort of celebrating our victory because our, the language we use shows that. Say like, we did it, we got a ring now. And in one sense, like, no, you didn't get a ring. You weren't, you didn't play on the field. You're not a part of the team. But in another sense, like, no, you're a part of it. By being a fan, you, you buy the tickets, you watch the show, you bought the jersey, you're funding the whole endeavor. 
And so it's this kind of collective celebrating of what we did. But this celebration, the greatest celebration in human history, is the celebration of the victory of another that we had nothing to do with. We didn't participate in it. We didn't help him along the way. This is the victory of the Lamb. And he invites us into that victory. It's a celebration unlike anything else that has taken place. Now, there's also something interesting. Did you catch this? It says that, that as they're celebrating, it goes on in verse 11. It says, Then I look and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures of the elders. Their number was countless thousands and plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. It's this this extra layer that's added. Remember the concentric circles, the sea of glass, the torches, the four living creatures, the 24 thrones, the 24 elders. And now there's thousands upon thousands, countless angels that are together singing and chanting and, and saying these same words, worthy is the lamb. Have you ever been a part of a choir or witnessed like a hundred person choir? It's powerful to hear a hundred human voices all singing the same thing. In the heavenly scene, there is thousands upon thousands, countless angels, all saying the same thing together. Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessings. Now, looking at the big picture of this, there are three major truths that we can see. One is about the nature of reality, one is about the nature of worship, and one is about the nature of God himself. So first, the nature of reality. The throne room scene tells us that at the center of all things, the center of reality, there is a throne and there's someone sitting on it. And it's not you and it's not me. And we might try to climb into that throne. We might try to take control sometimes, but that's not the way this works. There is someone who is seated on the throne and it's not you and it's not me. God is sovereign. And even when it appears like things are going horribly wrong, God is still sovereign and he is still good. Even when all of heaven is weeping because it appears that no one is able or worthy to open the scroll, God knows that the plan from the beginning before the foundations of the world was that the lamb would be slain for the sins of the world. And so you walk with confidence knowing there is someone on the throne, someone who sovereignly rules and reigns and he is good. And even when it don't look like it's going right, he is still in control and he's still good. The second thing about the nature of worship, oftentimes we use language like worship service is about to begin at 9 a.m. Or worship service starts at 11 a.m. Worship service starts at this time. Or you plan on watching the online service at this time. And it's this idea that you begin to worship with your church service. However, what the Bible reminds us is that for a very, very, very long time, before you were born, before I was born, before your great-grandparents were born, there were angels that surrounded the throne of God. And they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When you begin to worship God, you are not beginning worship. You are merely joining in worship that has been taking place for a very long time. And this is why it's so important to have church be a weekly, regular rhythm. You have to remind yourself with other believers that there is a throne and it is surrounded and there are constantly and continually beings praising and worshiping God and you are merely joining into something much larger than yourself. 
something far bigger than us or our local church exist. And all across the world, people worship God, but we're all joining into this, this worship service that has been going on for a very long time. And you need to remember that. And the last thing that this, this teaches us has to do with the nature of God. See, oftentimes we've inherited a distorted view of God. And sometimes that's due to upbringing, family, culture, whatever it may be. But you have an image of God that looks a certain way and it's distorted. Sometimes people think God is a is an angry, vindictive God. He's out to get you. He's not for you. And yes, he's a lion, but he's like a, a lion with sharp teeth ready to take you out. But what is the image the scriptures give us? The Son of God, our Messiah, the one who we worship, is both lion and lamb. He is fierce, but he is gentle. He is holy, but he is compassionate. He is righteous, but he is gracious. And so the image of God that we've inherited from whatever place it may be needs to be corrected with the needs to be corrected by the scriptures. He is the conquering lion precisely because he's a slain lamb. He is not against you, he is for you. The lamb died for the sins of the world. And that helps us understand who God is on a very profound and significant level. Now, I believe all of this stuff has the power to, to change your life when you know that there's a throne, when you know that the one who's, who's sitting on it is sovereign and the one who's able to open the scroll is the lion and the lamb. Has the power to change your life. Now, uh, roughly 15 months ago, we started our first one of these sort of online services. If you might, might remember, it was it was a crazy, scary Time And it was difficult for different reasons for different people. But I know pastorally what was incredibly difficult is, is what do you say? What do you say in a moment like that where, where there's a global pandemic, things are shutting down and people are terrified. And it's like, I remember being in the sanctuary, it was empty. And there was a few of the staff there and we're going, what do we tell our people? And do you remember if you were there, if you've been with us the last 15 months, do you remember the image we gave you? We gave you the image of the moon, and we said, the moon is always round. It doesn't matter what your eyes see, what your eyes perceive on any given night. It may be a half moon, a quarter moon, a little, little tiny moon. It doesn't matter what your eyes see. The moon is always round. And the idea behind that was some of the truth revealed in these scriptures. That God is always good. He is always faithful. He is always sovereign. Even when it doesn't seem like it, even when your eyes can't see it, even when it appears the night is completely dark, the clouds are blocking out the stars and the moon, it doesn't matter. All of what you see is irrelevant compared to the truth that the moon is always round. And likewise, God is always consistently good and faithful. And whether it's good times ahead or bad times ahead, it, it doesn't matter. The Christian hope is based upon this idea. At the center of all things, there is a throne and there is someone who sits on it. And he is good, he is faithful, he is all-powerful, and he is sovereign. And next to him is his son, the lion who is the lamb, a lamb standing as if slain. And he is worthy to open the scrolls. And when you learn to live in light of these truths, it changes everything. And so as we sort of close out a season um, of, of difficult times, and I'm not saying everything's going to be better tomorrow. Who knows what tomorrow may hold? 
But no matter where you might be, if you live in light of these truths, everything changes. God is on the throne. He is always good. He is always faithful. The moon is always round. And may you live and walk in light of these truths. So Father God, we give you thanks. We thank you for the Lamb, our conquering lion, slain before the foundations of the world. He is worthy to open the scroll. And we look forward to the great day for the final defeat of evil and suffering. But in the meantime, by your Spirit, preserve us and keep us faithful to you, that we would cling to the hope that you've promised and given. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for being near to us and with us during the past 15 months, Lord. We give you thanks today. We are a grateful people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.